Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe. I'm Thomas Hill. My guest today is David Tavares, Professor of Anthropology and Director of Latin American and Latino Latina Studies here at Vassar College. He's the author, co-author, and editor of several books, including the monograph, The Invisible War, Indigenous Devotions, Discipline, and Descent in Colonial Mexico, published in 2011 by Stanford University Press. And more recently, he co-authored Painted Words, Nahuatl Catholicism, Politics, and Memory in the Atzacoalco Pictorial Catechism, published in 2018 by Dumbarton Oaks, which we hope to interview David on at a later date. He's here to talk with us about the exhibition on view at the Francis Lehman Loeb Art Center through December 13th of this year. That exhibition is entitled Miracles of the Border, the Tablos of Mexican Migrants to the United States. Welcome, David. Well, thanks so much for having me on your show. And I know this exhibition came to us, came to the Francis Lehman Loeb Art Center with our director, Bart Thurber, who came to us from Princeton this spring. And I'm wondering, did you sign on at that stage? Well, I think we were lucky to have somebody come in as a new director of the Loeb who had a lot of experience at Princeton and had some ideas that he was bringing in. So in, in essence, this exhibit is a traveling exhibit. It's based on a collection that is renowned uh, mm. in terms of uh, its quality, in terms of the retablos that it contains. It was showcased at Princeton, and then Bart brought it to the Loeb. So it was at the planning stage when he was trying to get that in, that he called on me to help think about the exhibit, write a short piece for a publication that's put out by the Loeb, and to also mm, help advertise the exhibit. And we're going to have later on, it was going to happen last semester, but because of the pandemic, everything yeah. got canceled, but we are tentatively scheduled to have a panel, a virtual panel uh, in late October about the exhibit with some Vassar faculty, myself and, and Bart. Do you have a date for that panel? And is it open to the public? I suppose that's the question too. Uh, I think uh, an invitation will be sent out by the Lord. Uh -huh. uh, in terms of tentative dates, and it looks like it's going to be October the 21st, probably 5.30 p.m., People can check then the Loeb schedule when it's updated yeah. because it's not on there yet. So No, this is something that is just coming together. Oh. So far, we have Kirsten Wisselhoff from the Religion Department, Jonathan Kahn from Religion Department, Marcela Romero Rivera from Hispanic Studies, mm -hmm. uh, and myself. Huh. And somebody who's also helping organize because uh, she's taken a special interest because uh, she's the director of the Forced Migration Hurlet, Professor Maria Hun of the uh, History Department. So it's people in different departments at Vassar who uh, have been called in by, by Bart to give some broader context to the kind of expressions of resilience and gratitude that are embodied by these retablos. Wonderful. So the show itself, the way the Loeb Center works now, it's open to the public on the weekends, Saturday and Sunday, and it's open to the college community on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So that's great. There have been other events associated with the show since we opened, right? Because it opened in September, and I think there was a film series. I don't know if you had anything to do with that. I think that was organized independently. I think they screened Maria Candelaria, a magnificent film from the golden age of Mexican cinema. It's indirectly related to Retablos, but it's a wonderful film by Emilio Fernandez, who's, I guess, best known directors to have come out of this uh, golden age period of the uh, late 1940s through early 1960s in Mexican 
unfortunately, in mainstream American culture, we don't get much Mexican cultural exposure, do we? Considering, I mean, we're talking about the golden age of Mexican cinema, and I imagine most people don't know what that is and haven't seen a lot of Mexican film. You mentioned a brochure that you've written a piece for, for the Vassar Show, but is there a catalog for the show? Yeah, this exhibit was created first for Princeton, and there's a catalog that was published by the University of Arizona Press back in 1995, and it's called Miracles on the Border, Retablos of Mexican Migrants to the United States. It is co-authored by Jorge Duran and Douglas S. Massey. Mm-hmm. And these are two scholars who have been involved in the creation of this exhibit. A lot of the retablos come from the Duran Arias collection. Mm-hmm. So it's a personal collection that was initiated by Professor Jorge Duran. And as I said before, this is absolutely amazing collection that showcases what are usually seen as somewhat ephemeral. Mm-hmm. art objects, because of course retablos go up on the walls of churches throughout Mexico. They're created by artists who usually don't have a lot of training, formal mm-hmm. training. They do this uh, because they're known to be retablo creators. They paint a particular image that relates to the miracle the retablo commemorates. They write a short narrative that is put on the wall. It's not necessarily supposed to last for decades and decades, so mm-hmm. that's why you know, having this collection and having this exhibit helps preserve the medium and preserve the, I think the most important thing, of course, is the actual narratives. They're not necessarily first person singular, but they're definitely narratives that are intimate, close to the concerns of particular devotees of certain images. And they relate in in very personal terms as something extraordinary, a miracle that has been performed by a particular devotion of a particular saint or a particular virgin mm-hmm. and the retablo is the distillation of that miracle so you know uh, there's probably tens of thousands of retablos uh, all over north america and it, i think it is important for an exhibit like this to actually think about as part of not only popular culture but also religious history and social history mm-hmm. of uh, a different communities throughout mexico and this is in some ways what this exhibit is trying to Uh serve and uh, publicize. Do these reach back into deep time or is this something that comes about in the modern world? I know they at least go back into the 19th century, right? The tradition of painting retablos. I guess there's the short history and the long history. The short history, as you said, has to do mostly with small depictions Mm -hmm. that have usually one particular image that presents the miracle or presents a particular saint or virgin that has performed the miracle, along with a brief narrative. They started in the 19th century. They were painted in wood. A lot of them are now painted in tin, so they're more durable. And that's the short history. The long history, actually, if you think about the Greek and Roman votive images, you will go, and this is something that I, I think mentioned in my piece, I guess the retablo tradition would have been partially understood by people in the ancient Mediterranean world just because there was a practice of living representations of different body parts that had been healed or cured by a particular deity and then leaving that as a votive offering mm-hmm. at a particular uh, sanctuary, right? Mm-hmm. And this happened in different parts of the uh, ancient Mediterranean world. Mm-hmm. So, of course, when Christianity comes into the Americas through blood, fire, and conquest, of course. Indigenous people in uh, what is now Mexico begin to learn how to adapt 
Christian traditions and Christian devotions to the kind of ideas that they had about the cosmos and about the world. So this leads to the keeping of household images that were placed in particular places for saints. Uh, in Nahuatl, the word is Santopan, the place for the saint. And these are actually domestic art altars where you have an image of the Virgin of Oplan, later on, much later on, the Virgin of Guadalupe. You have some candles, and uh, this would be like a small domestic shrine. So I think in some ways that a tablet tradition stems from that closeness that was generated when indigenous and mestizo people welcomed particular images and particular devotions in their households, which of Mm. course means that when they have a particular need in terms of a something that needs to be healed, a terrible situation that needs to be righted, somebody who's disappeared, somebody who is under emotional, financial, personal strain, they'll go to a particular saint Mm. or virgin that they're devotees of. And then if it works at the personal level, then they will generate that retablo, and the retablo will be then placed in the church in a very public place, again, as a testimony of wow. um, what it is that they have received miraculously from a particular devotion. So are these retablos kept in the home and all, or are they mostly now placed in churches? And we do have, as you enter the Loeb Center, you have a wonderful, basically, projection on the wall. I'm sure it's printed in some way of what one of these churches would look like with retablos all over, hanging all over the church. You go through the doorway and it's like going through the arch of the church. So I know they're in the churches, but also do people still maintain altars at home like this? Or is it something that's gone by the wayside? I think you'd have to go to small uh, rural communities to find something like that. People do keep them. Something that's an extension of that is the creation of altars for the Day of the Dead, November 2nd, Uh which is a hybrid tradition. This is the time in which uh, even people who are not particularly vested in those type of uh, devotions might create for cultural reasons a small altar that honors actually the dead and their families. It's it's, uh, quite different because it is uh, about remembering those who have departed rather than thanking a particular supernatural or a a miracle. But in terms of your question, I would say that the retablos are meant to be for public display, Mm -hmm. public consumption. Uh, You may find them at a household, but uh, they're all made to be displayed. Again, the most important thing to think about is that there's definitely, I won't call it a popularity contest because that seems a a little uh, uh, superficial, but uh, particular devotions have a lot of followers and a lot of people who find that the most important devotion in their lives. I mean, an example would be the version of Kukila in southern Oaxaca, which uh, still to this date uh, inspires people to cross the southern part of the nation or the southern part of the state of Oaxaca in pilgrimage. Another example is the version of Ocotlan uh, in central Mexico. And of course, the greatest of them all is the version of Guadalupe in uh, uh, what is now called Tepeyac in northern Mexico City. So you have all these devotions that have their devotees. And I, I think the retablos is one way of keeping track from a collective perspective, how responsive, how wonderful a particular image has been. So this means that, of course, uh, you have lots of different devotions that are lesser known that made the the subject of a retablo. Another one that figures uh, very prominently in uh, Durand Arias' collection is the version of San Juan de los Lagos from West Central Mexico. And again, like these other uh, versions that I've mentioned uh, in the 
Atlantic. This is a particularly important devotion that has kind of a regional core. So if you go to particular churches in different parts of Mexico, I think you're going to see definitely very specific regional devotions that are reflected by not only the narratives, but also the numbers of retablos, which uh, as the entrance that you evoked, uh, the interested exhibit, is supposed to convey the fact yeah. that these retablos are meant to be seen on the walls of a church, the effect on people who come to the church is one of, uh, I think, wonderment. Yeah, it reminds me a bit, I'm a medievalist, it reminds me of the cult of the saints in the Middle Ages, where the saints tend to often have uh, devotions in particular regions. So a certain region will have its collection of saints. But also, of course, the saints have particular efficacy for some kinds of problem. You know, uh, St. Christopher, you know, comes to mind uh, for travelers, but there's a saint that you pray to if you lose something and you want to find it. And is this mostly a rural phenomenon, the, the painting of retablos, or is it something that extends, say, to Mexico City and, uh, and urban areas? I guess I, I was talking about rural communities in terms of household altarpieces. Yeah, uh-huh. okay. with, with the retablos, I think uh, the one generalization that I will make is that you're going to find retablos that were placed at very important shrines like Juquila, Tepeyac uh, in mm-hmm. Mexico City and other places. So this means that the retablos is really both urban and rural. Uh-huh. And what you're going to find, and particularly with the most popular devotions, is that these days, if you want to go up and put up a retablo, they wouldn't let you do it because there's no space. <laughs> and, and I think, uh, you know, in contemporary oh. times, I think it really depends, of course, in terms of which uh, clergy is in charge of which devotional site and what the local bishop thinks in terms of a policy. But I think if you were to try to do this today, you'd probably have to do it in a different way, just because people in certain places are more vigilant about the space around the uh, image uh-huh. so if i ask you to do something in different media including online so this is where i guess in terms of uh, the disconnect might be one more that is about time rather than a region uh-huh. uh, or uh, the urban rural divide if you see the um retablos in this exhibit i mean they span the period from the 1910s to about the 1960s yeah uh, and that's the other thing that contemporary Tradition retablo artists have more or less because there's less demand for this kind of works and people do it in different ways now. And you can print a, an image of a virgin these days. Uh, I think, I mean, that, that started uh, slowing down by the 1970s, right? Uh-huh. And of course, at the same time, you have different policies in terms of what uh, is allowed to be around uh, different images, which can get into uh, regional politics, like I said, and other concerns. And I think these retablos, I guess, uh, go back to an earlier age where it was very natural and normal for somebody to go up to the Basilica of Guadalupe, just find a little space, put their retablo there and go. Uh Is this mostly a Mexican phenomenon or does it extend to other parts of Latin America? This particular retablo tradition, I think, is deeply rooted in Mexico. Uh-huh. There are other examples of uh, similar retablos, you know, coming from Central America and South America, but they tend to have different forms. I mean, as an example, I would mention the Peruvian retablos, which is the same word, but it's a completely different thing. Uh-huh. A Peruvian retablo is actually basically a representation of usually the nativity or other scenes that are taken from biblical uh, narratives or the life of Christ that are done with small ceramic figures. So everything's placed in you know, relatively small space that is supposed to be highly portable, but oh. these are more an expression of folk art, right? Oh. We have 
different stories and devotions that recur in Peruvian retablos that are not necessarily orthodox, but these are meant to be created as uh, expressions of devotion in general terms. They don't represent a particular narrative of miracle uh, healing or anything of the sort that is uh, mentioned in the retablos, uh, the Mexican retablos. It's, it is a different tradition. It goes by the same name. And I think likewise, if you were to look at uh, the varieties of retablos, they're going to be a little different in Central America. So in some ways, I mean, when you think about retablos in this particular tradition, you're talking for the most part about a Mexican tradition that emerges in the uh, early 19th century. So the show is about a specific group of retablos that have as a theme, themes having to do with Mexican experience of migration into the United States. Uh, reasons to rejoice because uh, some tragedy has been averted or just reasons to thank whatever saint for whatever good luck that people have had. And it occurs to me, just as a matter of context, I don't know that most Americans have a, a real sense of how important United States is in uh, the Mexican imagination. It reminds me of my own experience of going to Ireland for the first time. When I was in Dublin, I, I was absolutely amazed at the number of establishments flying American flags out front. And then I realized talking to people that everybody had relatives in the United States or knew people in the United States. And just as, you know, if you were to go to Breezy Point, Queens and see uh, Irish tricolors flying everywhere, in Dublin, you, you know, you find American flags everywhere. And that seems to be something, uh, I mean, I'm not thinking of flags here, but I'm thinking of how important migration and the attachment to the United States is in Mexican lives. And is that a correct perception, do you think? That A, that America does play a big role in the imagination of, of many Mexicans, and B, that most Americans aren't aware of this. I'll start with a big question. I think uh, people are aware of what they want to be aware of, and they conveniently discard why they don't care about. I mean, in reality, after more than 50% of the land that used to belong to the Republic of Mexico was taken through conquest during the uh, intervention, the, the war of uh, U.S. intervention in Mexico in 1846-1847, which uh, ended with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. From that moment on, I think what was created was this geopolitical situation where you have people who all of a sudden are left with other country and they have to choose. Some people end up in uh, Mexico, what is now Mexico, some people end up in the United States. This is a complex story in the sense that, you know, in the 1840s also, this wasn't a border as much as an idea, right? Because you have indigenous nations like the Kiowa, Comanche, Apache that go back and forth. There's no border at that point. And they actually have a lot of control of the land until the wars against indigenous people in the 1870s and 1880s, which are quite bloody on the Mexican part. And uh, I think I don't think I need to remind uh, you viewers how bloody they were on the uh, North American part, creates a border, right? So you have a, and this all, I think, conveniently forgotten in terms of how the U.S. and Mexico are really part of this large geopolitical construct that was created, I think, in some ways in the 19th century is not going away in any shape or form. And it still fits off from a uh, waves of migration. Usually people think about Mexicans migrating for economic reasons to the U.S., which is, of course, true. But then you have a lot of the uh, networks and links that are created by the fact that the U.S. itself required agricultural laborers to come into something that was mm -hmm. called the Bracero program that existed for a good part of the uh, 20th century. 
until the 1960s, and that helped people on the West Coast and the Midwest tend their farms. So that's also an important piece. The other part, of course, that you were mentioning about U.S.-Mexico relations earlier and the golden age of Mexican cinema, I think in very interesting ways, there was an age where there were a lot of closer cultural contacts between Mexico and the U.S., particularly in terms of tourism and immigrant populations. Mm-hmm. I think this starts right after World War I, when you have political refugees coming into Mexico, U.S. political refugees, particularly socialists, anarchists. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then you have writers like William Burroughs and photographers like Edward Weston, lots of artists that uh, mm-hmm. come to witness, so to speak, the results of the Mexican Revolution and become enthralled with what they see. So I think there's a very interesting period from the 1920s until the 1960s where there's a lot of U.S. intellectuals that are quite aware of what's going on in Mexico and are very curious about it. If you think even about popular culture and movies like The Night of the Iguana, which was shot in Puerto Vallarta, you have uh, big movie stars like Elizabeth Taylor coming to shoot in Mexico. So you have all this uh, crisscrossing that goes, I think, across different social levels, right? From intellectuals to popular culture to immigrants, political immigrants from the U.S. to laborers that come from Mexico to the U.S. And I think particularly in the Asia we live today, which is an Asia of um, open hatred, populism, white nationalism. It's uh, very easy to forget how the border came about and the fact that whether white nationalists won or not, that's not going anywhere. And this is a condition that has been created by the fact that this is a, a single geopolitical region. It will continue to be one, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, there is very little that, uh, you know, on the larger scale, in the short term, politicians can do. In the long term, of course, you can have policies that erode uh, understanding and exchanges. But I, I think the economic, social, political conditions conspire to create an area where there's always going to be lots of exchanges uh, mm-hmm. no matter who's in power. Interesting. So I suppose one could say that cultural blindness is really tied to a kind of historical amnesia almost that's imposed by uh, mm-hmm. political forces. Really fascinating. I remember myself, you know, when I was a child in the 50s growing up, Mexico was a much larger feature of the imagination of the mass media, even Walt Disney on. I think it had to do a bit with the war, the Second World War, and the desire for the United States to keep Mexico as an ally, and certainly fears that it might go over to the Axis, which was a possibility. And so... There was an attempt to cultivate an awareness of Mexican culture and a friendship with Mexico, but that went by the boards, you're right, in the, in the 70s. Well, there's also, I mean, we're talking about, a, and I, I have to go back to 1920s, 1930s, this interwar period where um, Mexico becomes important, not only for U.S. intellectuals, but also if you think about Graham Greene. Uh, Ah, yeah. Lawrence, if you think about Malcolm Laurie, uh, three excellent British authors who happen to find their muse in Mexico. D.H. Lawrence's probably least popular novel, this novel, is about the plume serpent in Mexico. Uh Don't take on it. It's not necessarily better than his better known work, but it is a testimony of how important Mexico was for European and U.S. intellectuals, particularly after the Mexican Revolution. So these retablos then are about migration, especially. And, you know, we're talking about the background to the show. The show itself, I have to say, is magnificent visually. It's it's just a wonderful show, and it really pulls you in. Part of what pulls you in is the fact that the works have a uniformity to them, and that like Russian icons, Greek icons, you can see there's a form that needs to be followed. You know, there's an image of a saint there. 
somewhere often hovering in the sky. And then there's a scene that's being played out, often an ordinary scene. You know, it's a, it's a scene of a car wreck somewhere where somebody's lying on the ground and someone's praying to the saint. And, and the miracle then is described below. Uh, the miracle being someone was saved from dying in a, in a car accident on some highway in the United States in some city where they were working. Or, or there are all kinds of stories like this. But it's really wonderful visually. And part of it is this iconic aspect to the images where you learn to read them really quickly. And then there is text at the bottom of them all, right? And then one other thing that strikes me is there are almost assemblages of a kind. There are photographs sometimes pasted on of family members, apart from the figures that are painted that have to do with depiction of a narrative. And oftentimes there's a piece of ribbon or cloth affixed to the top where they hang on the wall. So they're very personal images, you can see. But on the other hand, there's a universality of them. Does my description make sense there to you? Yeah, no, I mean, I think you've isolated the key elements, which is, of course, the narrative, some sort of uh, depiction that alludes directly or indirectly to the narrative. And then you usually have a representation of the image that is responsible for the miracle and then one or two uh, genuflecting uh, figures uh, uh -huh. that are always on their knees. So that's the part that's always uh, kind of stable. But I think unlike um, Orthodox icons, uh, they have a lot of fluidity in terms of what people choose to represent. Sometimes the basic image, you know, there's lots of retablos. Uh, there's, for instance, uh, uh, the retablo of uh, Elifonsa Duran, which is uh, a story about uh, a woman called Elifonsa Duran who went to the United States, came back. The mother made a promise to the Virgin of San Juan de los Lagos that uh, if she came back in, in good shape, she would have a retablo painted for the Virgin. So you have the image of the Virgin and then the child and the mother on their knees in front of the image. So that's the minimum possible mm -hmm. have in a retablo. And then you can start adding battle scenes. You can start adding cars and, uh, uh, you know, hospital scenes, uh, mm -hmm. migrant workers on the fields. I mean, the uh, imagination and the uh, uh, dimensions of retablo is the limit. So I guess unlike Orthodox painting, which has, as you mentioned, very specific rules. When you're mm -hmm. talking about uh, Christ Pantocrator, Christ Pantocrator has a particular body posture, a particular shape that the fingers have to assume when he's represented. There's a lot of more fluidity in terms of how you present the face, the proportions, the colors, but the body posture of the Pantocrator is, is fixed. You cannot change mm -hmm. it, right? If, otherwise, it's not an orthodox icon. Whereas um, with these figures, you have kind of a, uh, the core of it, which is, of course, the, the figure that is expressing their devotion on their knees to a particular image the image and after that you can do lots of things yeah it seems like it's about not just the figure of the saint or you know the holy image but it's also a narrative it's about something that actually happened it's about an act that's portrayed here and that act involves ordinary people and it always seems very ordinary people and that this is a way for these people to thank whatever saint they feel helped them gratitude runs through all of these, doesn't it? And it's what gives them this kind of positive feel. I mean, you see a lot, a lot of tragic things happening, frightening things, but there's gratitude and that uh, people are saved in a sense uh, from these tragedies. And, you know, in the migrated experience, this is very, very important. You know, people get beat up or uh, um, they get washed out of the bureaucratic system. They don't get their passport. But on the other hand, some do. And the nice thing about them for me is that they do 
feature these ordinary people. And then they feature their own words in a way, their own thank yous. Uh, so even if there's an artist that interposes here in some way, it's almost as though these are real messages from individuals to whom these miracles happen. Maybe this adds to it because they're not highly technically gifted. The artists seem like ordinary people themselves. But the fact that they often are primitively drawn seems to relate the artist to the people this is being painted for. I guess in response to your comments, what I would say is that, I mean, you fix on this retablo by Domingo Segura, which is uh, uh -huh. 1932. Uh, and it depicts a miracle. Uh, somebody's crossing the uh, Rio Bravo or Rio Grande, uh, as it's called in English, and is safe from drowning. And the interesting part, of course, is like if you look at this is the El Paso, Texas border. Mm -hmm. I'm from Juarez, which is right across from El Paso. Uh -huh. uh, this bears no relation to what the bridge looked like even in the 1930s, like sort of <laughs> stone bridge. So you have this like interesting part where people who come back, you know, in this particular case, Domingo Segura came back to West Central Mexico and had this retablo made for the version of uh, San Juan de los Lagos again, who saved him from drowning. And I was looking at the um, uh, exhibit catalog and I was finding some interesting stories about certain retablo painters. Like they talk about an interview that uh, the authors, uh, Duran and Massey, an interview they had with somebody called Don Vicente Barajas, who's in Veracruz, who is actually... Somebody who is um, himself a migrant comes back and then becomes known as, a, as an excellent, prolific retablo painter. And he estimates that he's painted 5,000 retablos throughout his oh, life. So yeah. you have a, a few of these retablo artists who become very well known, right, for doing this particular kind of work. But uh, as I said before, it's like a very interesting interplay in terms of like the memories that are presented, the fact that the retablo painter himself usually is a he, a, so painters is imagining along with the oh. person what mm -hmm. happened, right? So as somebody who wasn't a witness to the miracle, you have to rely in some ways on how the imagination of the tablo painter recaptures mm -hmm. given him to work with by the person who is talking about the miracle and how that reflects, again, going back to this notion of like the core of the retablos being the representation mm -hmm. of the virgin and the yeah. people are on their knees. I mean, those are set elements. And then from then on, the retablo painter, like, uh, you know, Vicente Barajas, would decide with a lot of latitude how to depict this particular marriage. So I think that's uh, what makes uh, the retablo so vibrant because you have the imagination of the painter, which can uh -huh. be the most boundless, tied in some ways to the text. You know, uh -huh. just going to, uh, you know, just tell the very basic facts about the, uh, the narrative. Mm -hmm. but, in some ways, the pictorial presentation very often goes well beyond and is much more oh. imaginative and mm -hmm. evocative in different ways than what the text actually says. Yeah, it's wonderful to have the text there, though, because I'm immersed in art history all the time, and you don't often have the work of art with a text that to it telling you what it's about. You know, you have to guess most of the time. So what really fascinates me about these retablos is the way that they oscillate between the religious sublime on the one hand and the ordinary world on the other. They seem to portray common experiences of ordinary people or maybe uncommon experiences of ordinary people, you know, life and death instances in their lives sometimes, as though they have a kind of universal significance. And, you know, I just find that really wonderful. I'm teaching an allegory class now, and it's also to some extent about this ideal world that Plato posits in his Allegory of the Cave and in his Allegory of the Chariot, and then about 
the, the world that that isn't, the, you know, a lower register. And ideally, in allegory, what you want is some sort of communication between these worlds. And then here you have almost an easy communication. The spiritual representation is just on the same plane often as the people that these events are happening to. It may be a saint, you know, hovering in the sky, but, but not very far away, you know. There's something so personal about this. And it's a really exciting thing that you can have the imaginary and the ideal so close at hand. In response to that, that, that's interesting that you talk about platonic notions of how to envision the world. I mean, I, I would say something important to bear in mind is that uh, at least uh, I'm a Mesoamericanist. Uh, mm-hmm. I work on Mesoamerican cosmology. You definitely can say that there's no platonic forms of any sort, <laughs> no cave, uh, in the sense that yeah. uh, there's obviously a, a cosmos that is in some ways completely independent from what humans can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, humans can try to influence, manipulate, if you will, the cosmos in a number of ways. But I think what you have is a natural world that can always be connected to larger scale notions of the cosmological order, just in terms of what is visible Mm-hmm. So this is where the presence of something that is sacred is not something that's completely apart from Ooh. everyday life. You know, it can happen because it happens all the time. There's no divide, I would say, between something that is uh, divine and something that is natural in quite the way that happens in Western cosmologists, right? Mm. Uh, where sometimes yeah. uh, you need some sort of discourse about how they are different. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, the Christian indoctrinators spend a lot of time trying to, <laughs> trying to teach that, uh, that divide uh, yeah. to, to Mesoamericans <laughs> with yeah. uh, not much uh, success necessarily. So when you go back to what this is uh, about, and I, I mean, I think and the connection has been made before by people like William Christian, who works on 16th century uh, peasant uh, religiosity in Spain. I mean, there is a uh, notion that in rural communities, uh, there is what you were talking about earlier, this uh, closer connection to regional, local supernaturals mm-hmm. that are the ones in charge. It's not uh, God and Mary and Jesus. It's uh, these people that are much closer to a particular mm-hmm. terrain. In some ways, that happens as well in uh, Mexican, Latin America, but uh, with the important difference that in some ways this is surrounded, uh, particularly in indigenous communities, by, I think, some continuity in terms of a very different notion of how the cosmos works, how society Mm. works, how different divine beings who are actually in some ways inserted and living in the landscape Mm. uh, have a relationship with with other human beings. And of course, these are Christian icons. It's it's, it's a very different kind of attitude towards the world that the people who commissioned the retablos have. But in some ways, this is within the the cultural matrix Mm. of uh, a different notion of the cosmos, right? Uh, That somehow permeates how you think about a Christian entity. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And it has an effect, you know, when you go into the show, you you can actually feel this just for an ordinary museum goer going into the Logue Center. The the tablets seem to offer a very unusual and almost astonishing experience in that you get the sense of the possibility of moving between these worlds or of transformation. You can't help but feel that it might be possible that this is a kind of gateway. Art does this generally in some way, and religious art does it also, but not so wholesale. Maybe it's the whole show and the effect of the whole show. But, you know, you feel this is a kind of gateway that art is offering you to some 
different way of being. And maybe it has to do with the fact that you have these very ordinary scenes of ordinary people painted in this, as well as you have the iconic form in the same work, and you see it everywhere. And it's the ordinariness of it, of it that really gives it this transformational feeling. I mean, that's how I read them, and that's what it does to me. You know, that's the feeling I have when I walk into this. And what really excites me, you walk into it and you start wondering, why haven't I ever seen these before? These are very powerful works, especially as it's a group like this. They're very, very powerful works, and there's so much detail in them. You can look into the lives of individuals here. You can look into the whole cultural view of how things were at the time that they were painted for ordinary people. And at the same time, you get this spiritual sense uh, about them. All. So um, I don't know, it's, it's really a wonderful show and a, a, a wonderful experience of seeing this. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I'm looking at the retablo uh, submitted by Braulio Barrientos, again, for the version of San Juan de los Lagos. And uh, this is actually a pretty late one. It's from 1986, and it depicts migrants who are crossing the desert who run out of water. Uh-huh. And so you have a very realistic representation of, you know, what it would be to, to be in such, you know, terrible conditions, right? So I think the sense is that um, uh, the retablos communicate how miracles can happen every day to people yeah. who are faithful, uh-huh. right? And of course, this is something that is, is a, a comment, of course, a social commentary. I mean, like uh, these people are not describing the injustices that have led them to go across the desert various unfair conditions that have placed them in this situation, both in terms of <laughs> the Mexican government policies and U.S. immigration policies. But it is a commentary on that particular geopolitical situation through the medium of an expression of, of, of faith. And it is, uh, I think, all the more poignant because uh, they're not really trying to talk about how terrible it is to have nothing, to have to go across the desert to get a livelihood. But you can see it depicted in this image. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And of course, yeah. the other part is that uh, in all the retablos, the constant topic is not only gratitude, but the notion of a promise. Like uh, mm-hmm. these people who were in this terrible condition, they said, well, we have to pray to the Virgin of Los Lagos, uh, San Juan de Los Lagos. Uh, we really need her help. They provide, uh, I guess, an idea of how they did that. And then they make a promise to record this miracle, mm-hmm. uh, the sanctuary, by a commissioning this retablo, which of mm-hmm. course... They, they have to acquire, they have to pay money for it, they have to find a, a person who does it. So it's, it's like basically gratitude, promise, but also mm. an extraordinary commentary on their life conditions and the injustice, uh, the unjust world in which uh, they live. Yeah, and it ties them then, especially since they are recording it in the retablo, to an historical tradition in a way, the way biblical figures were believed at one time to be historical people. I mean, in the Middle Ages, when you come across Abraham and Sarah, you come across them as though they're real people, you know. And here, this seems to be a way of recording personal histories, you know, of allowing ordinary people to be part of an historical landscape, which is very interesting. I mean, most people don't keep diaries, uh, and they may tell their children about some horrific thing that happened to them, you know, at some time in their life, something from which they were happy to escape. But people don't usually write these down in, in the memoirs and that kind of thing. And this is a kind of historical document, uh, even if it is meant to be evanescent to some extent. So it, you know, it strikes me that it does have an historical purpose. And it, then for us, as historical documents, they, they can open our eyes to what ordinary experience is like in this part of the world for this people. In reference to that, these retablos are records that uh, can be read from a historical perspective, and you can think about them as kind of amplifying uh, mm-hmm. what we know about certain 
processes. Like I think in my article for the love, I've described this retablo by Matias Lara, who talks about going to Chicago uh, in 1919. And he's completely lost in the city of Chicago. He's coming from a small town. Mm -hmm. uh, he's completely lost. The retablo actually has a representation of tall buildings and big cars mm -hmm. and everything that was relatively foreign to Matias Lara. And because he calls upon the virtue of the Los Lagos to deliver him from this sense of being completely lost and not knowing where to go. He's able to find his way, and then this retablo finds his place in the sanctuary of San Juan de los Lagos. Uh, but of course, if you put this together with what we know about migration, uh, Mexican migration to the U.S., there is a Mexican anthropologist by the name Manuel Gamio, who wrote about the first waves of uh, Mexican workers and migrants who came to the U.S. before and after World War One? So this is what I think that th this kind of vignettes uh, would easily have found the place in the monograph that he published in 1930, which is called The Mexican Migrant. It is the first academic monograph that is devoted to understanding modern Mexican migration to the U.S. And it features a lot of what we now call oral histories, narratives of people who are coming and who say why and how they came and what they're doing in the U.S. So in some ways, I mean, this testimony by Matias Lara would have been a very nice uh, counterpart uh -huh. A echo of the kind of stories that uh, anthropologist Manuel Gamio mm -hmm. collected, uh, I guess, for the first time systematically in this 1930 monograph. Fascinating. I hope a lot of people do see this while it's here, and hopefully it'll travel elsewhere. I didn't ask, I meant to ask, I would just point out, this is a, a, a bilingual show. Uh, all the labels are in Spanish and English. And I expect that was done with a hope of widening it to a Spanish-speaking audience, the, the show. And that, uh, you know, because we do have a, a large uh, Latino Latina community here in uh, Poughkeepsie, and uh, ideally, you know, this might be of interest to them as well as to people that don't know the culture at all. So. Yeah, no, I think this is very important to get the largest viewership that is possible. By the way, I mean, this is part of uh, a series of exhibits at the Lord that have been bilingual. For my class in this American Walls, we have organized bilingual exhibits for the last... Uh, oh, you have? Okay. It's, a, it's unusual, I have to say. So. It's unusual because you have to uh, write labels. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which for people at the Lord is an added uh, 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 burden. Yeah, anyway, it's just a beautiful show. I really urge people to come see it. So I, I want to thank you, David, for talking with us on the Library Cafe today about the show Miracles on the Border, Retablos of Mexican Migrants to the United States up at the Francis Lehman Loeb Center through December 13th. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it was great.